Amen. Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Matthew 23. We're going to be in chapter 23 today. This is a rich passage, the very interesting passage. We've entered the final week of our Lord's ministry, and in chapter 23, our Savior preaches His final public sermon just days before His crucifixion. One would think that if Jesus is preaching his final message, he would make it an invitation to the salvation that he is about to work on the cross. He's, in a matter of 48, you know, 60 hours, he's going to be on the cross. And you would think that that would be the sacrificial lamb's greatest sermon about salvation. But instead, we find Jesus using his last sermon to publicly denounce the corrupt spiritual leaders of Israel. This has already been a very busy week for Christ, if I could set you up, as we've always shared, whenever we study the Bible, it's real important to try to understand the context, the bigger picture around that particular passage that we're studying. And so this has already been a very busy week for Christ, and it's probably Wednesday. Sunday, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, publicly claiming to be the Messiah, and then he makes a beeline for the temple, and in the temple he chases out the money changers who were making it extremely difficult for people to worship God. That's the one thing as a shepherd, and as I know our elders who are the shepherds of this flock, we never want to do anything that would hinder you from worshiping God. That's why we keep things simple and pure. We, we just don't want any distractions to, to God himself. And so Jesus has, has, has cleansed the temple, so to speak, and now the Jesus of Scripture is about to unleash his, uh, his truth on the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Jerusalem council, the chief priest and all of his cronies. He's about to expose them. Uh, interestingly, the Jesus of Scripture always showed kindness and forbearance to sinners. But those who gave appearance to be righteous, self-righteous, he came straight at them, and he did not let up. He would pronounce the woe of the prophets upon them. In fact, let me give you an example. If you want to write this down, you can write it down in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. See, a lot of times people have this image of Jesus, that he's simply this wonderful, loving, kind, compassionate Savior. He is that, but that's not all that he is. Not only is Jesus about compassion and love and grace, he's also about justice and truth and faithfulness. And so here in Luke 18, 9, it says, he also told this parable to some, here's who he's speaking to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so look what Jesus says. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I fast twice a week. Now, the Pharisee goes first. He's standing in the temple and praying uh, by himself, and he prays out loud so everyone can hear. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector right here. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, didn't even think he deserved to be at the temple because of his sinfulness. Jesus said the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got one man who's proclaiming how righteous he is and calling out everybody else, and another who can't look up to see anybody else. He can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He's so ashamed of his sinfulness. And he cries out to God for help. 
God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That was the last verse that Brother Ray read for us. After chasing these hypocrites out of the temple, the community of the corrupt religious leaders went into war mode on Jesus, trying to trap him in his own words. So from Monday to Wednesday, they're doing everything they can to try and trap him, which is hilarious to think about that man could possibly trap God. Uh, like in chapter 21 and chapter 22, where the Pharisees questioned Jesus about his authority, and his answer just made them look silly. Finally, at the close of the last chapter, verse 42 in chapter 22, if you want to turn, you can see it. Our Lord asked them a question. He asked the Pharisees, the hypocrites, a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David, not knowing that's actually the Messiah, the son of David. But they said, he's the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, capital L, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If they only saw him as the son of David, but not as Messiah, well, then why did David address him with the title Lord, capital L, as a Messiah? What father calls his own son Lord? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So for three chapters, they've been trying to trap Jesus. They're unsuccessful. Jesus starts a sermon, and now in this sermon, he's not done. They might be done. He's not done. He now levels them. So interestingly, we're about to study in chapter 23 the groundwork for the cross, the groundwork for the church that will follow after Christ is uh, ascended to heaven. He's about to do something here in this, in this sermon. Number one, He's going to point the people away from the false leaders of their day. He's going to call them out for what they are. That's what Ray was reading to us. Number two, he's going to address his disciples and challenge them, shore them up for what's to come. And number three, he's going to tell the people, these men, the disciples, are the true future spiritual leaders. You want to follow them. And of course, within 50, 54 days, the day of Pentecost will occur and they will gather, the 120 believers will gather and the Holy Spirit will come upon them and Peter, one of the 12, will stand up under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he will preach the first sermon in the church. And on that sermon, 3,000 people will be saved. So this is the beginning point, what we're about to read. This is Jesus laying the groundwork as the Father has called him so that the people will take their eyes off of the spiritual leaders or at least know and recognize them as false teachers and will point them towards the disciples who will become leaders of the church in the future. So let's pick up, if we can, what our Lord is going to teach us today is how to recognize false teachers from God's teachers, from those who are pure and true in the Lord. Number one, I'm sorry, verse one, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. To sit in the seat of Moses is a picture of someone who is in a seat of authority. That's what it meant. The scribes and Pharisees had taken this position of authority even though God never gave it to them. They just assumed it. Okay? They were executing an authority that was not authorized by God. Jesus just called them out on that. And this, by the way, is Jesus, God speaking. And he's saying, these guys that have been sitting on the seat of Moses, they never got that the right way. 
They're just taking it on their own. The first sign of a false leader, write these down if you'd like, as a church, because in our day there are false spiritual leaders everywhere. It was prophesied by the apostles that in the last days you're going to hear from those who will simply try to tickle your ears. They're going to be false teachers. They are among us. So here's the first sign of a false spiritual leader is someone who assumes spiritual authority when it has not been given to them. It isn't really spiritual at all. They're just taking power. It's a power grab. And that's what these guys had done. They aren't willing to wait and allow the Lord to give them authority. They just take it. And the reason they're not willing to wait for the Lord to give it is because they're wicked and God will never give it to them. So the only way to get the authority is to take it. And people with hearts that are just trying to worship God, these guys step into this role, the seed of Moses, and they just think this, he's the guy. They don't have the discernment to know the difference. That's why Jesus is giving them understanding and knowledge so they can discern in the future between false teachers and true teachers of God. How do we know that King David, remember David, when he was being chased down by King Saul and Saul was throwing spears at him and wanted to take his life because God allowed an evil spirit to enter Saul? How... What made David a rightful king of Israel? Why did later David rise up, God literally seat him on the throne? Why? I'll tell you why. Because there was a point while Saul was chasing David to take his life that David had the opportunity to sneak up on Saul. His own men, David's men said, God's given you the opportunity to take Saul's life. Take it. David sneaks up on him. And he cuts the zitzit, the, the hem of the garment that would be in the color of blue, symbolizing heaven. He cuts the corner of it. And later he goes back to his men after cutting the corner of King Saul's garment, and he says, my heart is stricken. Not because he thought about killing Saul, not because he tried to kill Saul, simply because he cut the hem of God's anointed's garment he said that's the lord's anointed wait a minute the guy that's trying to kill you yeah that is the lord's anointed you say how can that possibly be why wouldn't david take his life the man's trying to take his own life and god's already told david you're going to be the next king so take him out no because that's god's work god is the one who anoints kings only god can remove a king david would not touch the Lord's anointed vessel, even though that vessel had become wicked. In fact, David, his response basically is, Lord, I have to believe this. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but David's probably thinking, because the Psalms kind of reveal it, Lord, you're using this wicked vessel to change me, to shape me, to make me the man you want me to be when I become king. Some of us are running from the trials and the setbacks and the pains. We have an, a wicked boss. We have an unruly neighbor. And we just want to get even. We just want to get away from them. And God's like, I put them in your life to teach you and grow you and change you. Stop running. Start listening. Let the Lord minister to you in those situations. This is exactly what we should do when we have a wicked leader. Recognize that there's something wrong. Let the discernment of, of, of the Lord come upon you that you would recognize the wrong. But don't try to take matters in your own hands. Let the Lord take matters. He, he knows better how to handle them. Amen? Verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Here's the second uh, sign of a, spirit, a false spiritual leader. They lack integrity. They can actually say the right things, but they don't live out what's right. What's in their heart is wicked. 
They lack integrity. When you see someone who's in a position of spiritual leadership and they lack integrity, that ought to tell you something. Something's not right on the inside. They're fakes. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. He's speaking of these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these chief priests and the, the Jerusalem council. He said, he said, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're going to pronounce over you these different man-made traditions, the traditions of the elders, Jesus called them. You need to live by these rules. If you don't practice the Sabbath, if you don't blah, 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 all these different things that people want to put on top of the gospel. Paul said, if anybody preaches any other gospel than the one I'm preaching, let him be cursed. Even if the angels pronounce a different gospel than the one I'm preaching to you, let them be cursed. Nobody should add to the gospel in your life, putting a heavy burden upon you. Nobody should make you bear burdens alone. These men were willing to let you bear burdens. They weren't willing to bear them themselves. False leaders, here it is, will not bear the burdens that the people bear. They will not bear the burdens that the people bear. Whether it be in the teaching that they give, the things they're commanding you to do, they don't do them themselves. Or whether they are, see you in a time of trial and struggle, yet they won't get down in the ditch and help you. They live apart from you. They live their own life. That's a false leader. Know that. Take your Bible if you want, but I'm going to move quickly through it, but I'm going to read the text Write it down, Ezekiel chapter 34. I'll read verses 1 through 6, six verses in Ezekiel 34. Of course, Ezekiel being a prophet of God, and he's calling out. God has spoken through him, and he's speaking to the shepherds of Israel, those who are in the seat of Moses over the people at that, in that period of time. And Ezekiel 34, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, and God gave him this word to give to the, to, to the leaders. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. This is God really climbing on those who were in spiritual positions of leadership in the Old Testament who had made their ministry. It was simply a business to them. It was a way of making a living, making money, and they made good money on the people. That's what Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple for. People were coming in with their little turtle doves because they're poor. They bought a turtle dove in the marketplace just outside the temple for 15 cents, and they're coming in to offer a sacrifice to God. That's all they can afford. And they would be stopped by the chief priest or his cronies, and they would say, wait, whoa, you're not going to bring that turtle dove as a act of worship to God and sacrifice, are you? That's a blemished turtle dove. That would never work. Go over here to this table in the temple. We have turtle doves that are, that are appropriate for the worship of God. And you walk over and they say, yeah, that'll cost you 15 bucks. They made it difficult for people to worship God. And in the Old Testament, God saw the shepherds doing the same thing. Listen, church, true shepherds feed and protect the flock. They don't prey on the flock. They're not the wolf. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd 
doesn't rule over the people and exact from them whatever he needs to make his life easy. Listen, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus has not instructed hired hands to care for his flock. He has called shepherds, true shepherds, who are willing to lay down their life for the sheep, who when the wolf comes, they protect the sheep, who as the sheep face life, they feed the sheep. The greatest way to protect and feed is by the Word of God. When we give you the Word of God, when we teach the Bible, that is feeding you. And number two, it is protecting you because now you know better how to recognize what's false from what is authentic. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. He said it twice. So what do you think the emphasis of shepherding is? Smelling like sheep. Being with sheep. Loving sheep. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries. Going back to Matthew's uh, 23 here, he's still speaking of these hypocrites, these fakes. He says, they do all their deeds for one reason, to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Let me just take a second. A phylactery was a piece of leather that had a little leather box, usually, on, on the, attached to the leather. And this little box would sit right on that band around your forehead. They're taking the Old Testament teaching in Deuteronomy about writing the Word of God on your, on your forehead, on your post, on the door of your house. And so they would, they would use these uh, mezuzah on the door. They would use the phylactery on their forehead. And it would be, the, the word of God would be inside. Usually the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and They would keep these. Well, here's what the Pharisees would do. Not only would they wear the little phylactery, but then they wanted to be seen as really spiritual, so they would make the phylactery bigger, and they would make the band wider. And they'd walk around, and the phylactery's so big, it's like they can't even keep their head up. But they're trying to impress people. And then they would take the, that robe, that garment, that, that hem, that zit zit. Uh, God gave how many, how many laws to Israel in the Old Testament? Ten. How many laws did the false spiritual leaders make out of ten? 613. And so on the hem of their garment, they would tie knots. 613 knots. And walk around to remind the people of the law. That's not the law. That's the tradition of man. And they would walk around and they would make their hem wider. The blue would be wider. The blue, was it came from a snail that they would find in the sea. And each little snail could produce not even a, hardly a drop of blue ink. And so if you wore a, a robe that had blue on it, it was very little blue. These guys had bands that were this wide, totally blue, because it spoke of their wealth. Oh, aren't they something, these great men of God? And God, because they're such great men of God, God has blessed them. Look at all the ink that it took to make that band. And Jesus is going, <laughs> makes me want to puke. He says, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Oh, they, they want to be called reverend. I've actually met pastors who, you know, in the introduction, somebody would say, well, this is reverend such and such. And I'd say, hi, pastor. No, reverend. They correct me, reverend. 
And my word is to you, don't ever call me reverend. <laughs> to revere is to have awe. We should never be in awe of any man. Care what title he carries. We only reserve awe for God. And that's what these guys wanted. They lived by it. So what's the point? Number four, false spiritual leaders lack humility. They would clank their coins into the money box at the temple. They made their phylacteries bigger to impress others. They always wanted to be seen so that in the big chair, they looked so impressive at the temple. They wore wide zitzits. Now, Jesus turns now, and he addresses the crowd and his disciples. He's basically, again, setting up. Okay, I just told you what these guys are like. These are false teachers. Recognize it. Know the difference. Now, let me address my disciples, and let me address you as people of Israel. But you are not to be called rabbi. He's speaking directly to his own disciples now. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Who's the one teacher? Somebody tell me. Jesus. Jesus. Okay? You're not the rabbi. He's the rabbi. You're just his under-shepherd. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. I, I do struggle with uh, some of the denominations that... that refer to their, their spiritual leaders as father. You know, I, I do struggle with that because of this passage. Um, I don't think there are any earthly fathers that with capital F. I don't think we need to call anybody that. I have a heavenly father. Amen? I, I don't need to go through anybody to get to God. That would be Old Testament teaching. In the New Testament, I have one father, and he tells me that I can come boldly into his throne room and receive grace and help in my time of need. Neither can be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the anointed one. That's what it means, Christos, the anointed one. The greatest among you shall be your servant. For you, disciples, as you come into the early church, into the church, as it launches, you will be the spiritual leaders, but it will be completely opposite of what the world knows, what Israel has known by their false shepherds. You will not be a leader by being over people. You will be a leader by being under the people, serving the people, loving the people. See, in the kingdom of heaven functions, it functions differently than the world. Jesus says a true spiritual leader does two things. Here it is. Write them down. Two things. A true spiritual leader avoids elevated titles, and he accepts lowly positions. He carries out a lowly task. That's why the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest apostle in terms of the theology that he wrote in the letters that he gave to the early church. Nobody's greater than Paul. And yet Paul refers to himself as a slave to Jesus Christ. And you break that Greek word slave down and you get the idea of a bottom rower in a trireme ship. Three levels, three decks of rowers, oars sticking out. You're on the bottom level. He's saying that for me to be a slave to Jesus Christ is to be in the lowest position and to be faithful to pour my, pull my oar well for Jesus. That is the greatest position of a leader. We look at certain men in this world and we think, oh, he's such a great man of God. No, he's not. He's an ordinary man, and if he truly is a man of God, he believed in a great God. There are no great men. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? All men are evil. We're all depraved apart from the work of Christ on the cross. Aren't you glad that not only did God save you, but before he saved you, he drew you to himself. No man can come to the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. God gets all the praise for your salvation. 
You can claim none of it for yourself. And so when we see these men on earth that do things for God, that serve this great God, I just marvel at what God can do through a slave, through a submitted vessel. Most of us, when we think about men who have done great things for the Lord, we, you know, Billy Graham comes to mind, all these, you know, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon and all these great leaders down through the ages. But not very many will think of Bill Bright. You've heard the name, Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the one that God used to put together the Jesus video. Bill Bright had that video put all over the world in different languages for people. They say that at least 2 billion people on the earth have seen the Jesus video. Um, Millions of people have been saved by the Jesus video. And yet you've never heard the name Bill Bright. I had the privilege before Bill's passing of spending time with him. I had the privilege of watching him up close and personal. One of the questions, along with a couple other pastors, we were together with him and we asked him the question, Bill, what do you think it is in your life that has allowed you to be used of God so greatly? What was it? And he said, well, that's a very easy answer. He said, when I first married my wife, we sat down at the kitchen table together as just young people, just getting started. And we wrote out with a pen and piece of paper a contract to God. And we said, all the days of our life, we will serve as your slaves. Look how God used him as a slave. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom that we're called to as Christians. You belong to it. But not to rule over, not to power up, but to be a lowly servant of Christ where he gets all the glory for anything that happens in your life. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there you have it, his warning to the people to recognize false spiritual leaders, but also he's calling his disciples. He's saying, this is how you're different from verse 8 to verse 12. You are different than these other guys. When when I leave and the Holy Spirit comes and the early church begins, this is how you'll lead. Now his message turns directly to the false leaders. Ho, ho, ho. Here Jesus gives a series of woes like the prophets of old. Interestingly, he shares eight woes with the Pharisees. Eight woes, okay? This is his final public message. He's going to share eight woes. In his very first public message, Matthew chapter 5 through through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the very first part of that sermon, Jesus shared eight blessings. And they parallel the eight woes at the end in his final sermon. Let's quickly look at these. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut down, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You're not only blocking yourself from heaven because of your lies and your false life, but you're going to hinder others from going. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, the first of the blessings. By the way, so you understand what I'm talking about here. In the Old Testament, the prophets gave oracles to people. They spoke for God to the people. Two types of oracles, oracles of blessing and oracles of woe. When they spoke an oracle of blessing, the people praised him. Oh, he's wonderful, Jeremiah. What a great man of God. Honey, let's take him home for lunch today. Let's let's kill the fatted calf and bless that man. He gave us such a beautiful blessing to us today. And then when the same prophet would speak a woe from God, they'd pick up stones to kill him. Jesus is giving eight 
woes to the Pharisees. He's already given the blessing. And the blessing, he says this in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what did Jesus just say in contrast? The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit, to those who know that they are sinners and would never be worthy of heaven. The Pharisees are proud in spirit. The poor in spirit will enter heaven. The proud in spirit will not. And those who follow the proud in spirit will not enter heaven. Verse 13 again, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Their false teachings will keep others from going into the kingdom. Liberal, who would that be? Liberal theologians in our day who try and make the Bible say the opposite of what it actually says. Where they try to make evil good and good evil. Woe to you, scribes. He goes to the next one, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single follower, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You go out and you try to make followers and you make them wicked but those who are blessed are those who recognize their sinfulness and they mourn over it they don't want to follow a false teacher they don't want to be filled with with uh false pride and 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 false righteousness Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple that is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Basically what they're doing here is they are uh, oversimplifying and they're, or, or they're making complex, they're not making simple, they're, over, they're making complex with their semantics, with words so that they could fool people. If they said to you, well, I pray to you by the altar in the temple, I swear to you by the altar in the temple that I wouldn't do that. Well, that's a way for them to lie and to get away with doing it because they didn't swear by the gold. They didn't swear by God. They swore by the altar. It was their way of getting out of the very commitments that they made. He goes on, he says, uh, You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the, of the temple or, or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, there is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gifts that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. They, all these little lines they draw. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, God himself. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on the throne. You can't get away with these little semantical changes that you make. Now in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus, the contrast of that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus said you're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. What would that be? Honesty, truth, simplicity. The opposite of what the Pharisees are doing. The false teachers didn't care about true righteousness. They were only concerned with, with their semantics. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which would be justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Verse 7 of Matthew 5, what's the blessing? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. According to Leviticus 11, the largest unclean animal among the Jews was the camel. The smallest was a gnat. Jesus is basically telling them in this analogy that he's saying the Pharisees, the scribes, the hypocrites, what they try to do is remove a little tiny gnat from their soup but then they choke on the camel in their soup. You're not willing to look at the big problems, at the big issues. You only look at the little things. You don't follow God in the big things. Why? Because they would have to rely on God to live out their life. They would rather just set up their own little things that they can manage without God. Maybe that's you. 
Maybe you're living a false life. You're not really following Jesus. You're just putting on the clothes and you're looking the part. You're just, you're just making sure the gnats aren't in your life. And God's saying, wait a minute, you got a camel in there, man. When are you going to look at it? Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's the contrast that Jesus gives in the blessings in Matthew 5, verse 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. On the outside, the Pharisees gave the impression that they were God's representatives, God's righteous, devout men, peaceful men. Yet on the inside, they were plotting to kill Jesus. They weren't peaceful. When he's saying this, he knows they're trying to kill him, and they will kill him. They will do whatever they can to have him arrested and killed. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents of, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus is speaking of his own death, and he's speaking of the, the, the apostles' persecution that they'll face so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barashai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now he's being specific. They thought they got away with it. They didn't. Matthew 5.10, what did Jesus say on the blessing side of this? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, blessed are the persecuted, and woe to the persecutors. The false leaders said that they would never participate in the sins of their fathers by killing the prophets of the Old Testament. But they have already laid a plan to have Jesus arrested and killed. Jesus says, on the outside, you make it look so good, like you're so innocent, you're such a peacemaker, but your heart's wicked. So Jesus says this in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All these things, these lies that you've been living, on the outside looking so righteous and on the inside being so wicked, the way that you persecute those who truly represent God, just like your fathers did with the Old Testament prophets. What will come upon this generation specifically? Because he said it's going to come upon this generation. The blood, the death, the scourging, the tribulation, and the persecution that had befallen the prophets throughout history are going to, all, their, all the blood's going to be on you. Within the next 48 hours, this generation will say before Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. Jesus is calling them out. He's telling them, you will be there. And guess what? The blood was on them, and that paid back some 40 years later when God allowed the Romans to come to Jerusalem and completely level the city and destroy the temple. And tens of thousands of Jews had their their throats slit in Damascus by the Romans because they wanted the blood on them of what they had done. And God said, okay, here it is. Your sins will find you out. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing to be gathered by the Messiah. See, your house is left to you desolate. Know this. This is worth writing down just for your future Bible study. Every time Jesus repeated a name, it was because 
his heart was breaking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. His heart is breaking over the people of the holy city who rejected him. Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Jesus' heart was breaking for Simon. Luke 10, 41, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, my heart breaks for you. You're so caught up in duty that you've missed the act of worship. Doing things for God as a way of making, somehow thinking you're appeasing God. That is a religion. That's not true worship of Jesus. There's no relationship in that. So whenever Jesus repeats the name, his heart's breaking. In Acts 9, 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus' heart breaking over Saul and the Christians that he had persecuted and had killed. Verse 39 in our text, we finished it out. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a great ending to a sermon. When Jesus first entered Jerusalem, just three days earlier, they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said, you're not going to say that unless, unless, is that what he said? I tell you, you will not see me again unless you say, blessed is he. No, no. He said, until you say. He's not saying, Jews, you might not get in because unless you say it. No, he said, until. He's saying to the people, you've rejected me. But there is a day coming before the end where the nation of Israel, church, will repent of their sins and they will call upon the name of the Lord and they will say, blessed is he who, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. It's awesome. That's his final sermon. The Jews will return their hearts to Jesus before the end of days. I wonder if you'll turn your heart to Jesus today. This is such a strong word about hypocrisy. We can easily fall into it. That's not the question. The question isn't do we at times uh, live uh, in hypocrisy. We all do. The question is what do you do about it? Do you just keep on living in it as a pattern? Or do you allow the Holy Spirit to reveal it and then do you submit that to God and as a slave of Christ surrender your life and say, Lord, I can't take care of this. My flesh will every day rise up and try to look good, but I surrender my life to you fresh today and ask you to make me your slave, to serve you, to not be fake, but to genuinely Live a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Let's all stand. We're going to pray a prayer. And today, if, you're, if you came in here and you were not a believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, but today through this teaching, God has been speaking to your heart I just want you to, I want it to be clear for you that salvation is nothing other than you recognizing that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to this earth in human form, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned once. And that qualified him to go to a cross to become the payment for our sins. Only the innocent can die for the guilty. Only the innocent can pardon the guilty. And that's exactly what he did. And on the cross, God the Father poured out his anger and wrath 
and it's judgment on Jesus because of our sins. The wrath, the judgment that should have come on us came on his son. Jesus took on our sins and satisfied the wrath of God so that God no longer holds wrath and anger and judgment over us who believe in Jesus. Do you believe in him as the son of God? Have you released yourself into his arms and said, Lord, I, like Paul, I, I desire to be a slave of Jesus Christ. I surrender my life to him. Father, this morning, those who right now are just calling out to you by faith. <laughs> the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, may salvation come to those who are here today. And then, Lord, for us who are saved, yet this is a challenge for us to never walk in hypocrisy, to never walk in pride and arrogance and putting emphasis on title and position and putting emphasis on possessions, but to be slaves of Jesus Christ, to be the servant and to love people like Gary, to share Christ where the opportunities arise. He said it, and he said it well. His job was simply to throw the seed, the Word of God, where you gave him opportunity. May we do the same. May souls be saved. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. While you're standing, you can see that there are uh, prayer partners, those who... Uh, serve in this capacity along with elders. If you need prayer, please come to one of them. They'll be glad to pray with you about any matter. Some of you are hurting. Come, let them minister to you, okay? God bless. Have a wonderful day.